0: Welcome to the podcast Cocktail Party Economic Conversations with your hosts,
1: Evie Animate and Richard Maranta. Welcome back to the podcast uh, Cocktail Party Economic Conversations. I'm here with a former student. Ron Gerges, and he uh, was our first co-op student from the University of Guelph uh, a long time ago. And I am really excited that he's here. He's had a very varied career, and he's going to talk a bit about it. And I'm going to hand it over to Rick, who's going to uh, have a conversation with Ron. And I'm going to talk a little bit with Ron about the ideas uh, that are found in Chapter 4 of Cocktail Party Economics, Producing Wealth, how inputs lead to outputs, and what that looks like in the real world.
0: Hi, everybody. Um, I'm here with Ron Gerges, co-founder of the Convergence Collective, a boutique consultancy out of New York. And I think that's a great name. I like uh, just that whole Convergence and Collective sort of uh, Bringing in a lot of things together, and I think that's a that's a great name. So I'd, I'd like to hear more about that when you start talking about it. Anyways, I uh, so my job is to sort of ask all the fluff questions that every gets to ask all the smart person <laughs> questions. So it's kind of. Can I only yeah. to the fluff Somebody's got to <laughs> do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they won't be fluff questions. Uh, <laughs> answers the answers will be fluff. But anyways, so yeah, I, I just want to hear a little bit more about your journey. Um, You talked on your website about leveraging the power of narrative economics, you know, to create deeper connections across communities. I thought that was interesting as well, because being an English major, I worked with Evie and writing this book. And so narrative story is something that people resonate with, right? And so I thought that was interesting. So anyways, I just want to hear your narrative, you know, going back, uh, what was your journey? Some of the things things that motivated you or some of the influences, the inputs into your life that sort of got you to where you are now?
2: Yeah, um, so first of all, thank you very much. Thanks for wanting to speak with me. Um, that's, that's actually really wonderful. Um, I, uh, I, in terms of narrative economics, by the way, it's, it's a tip of the hat to economist Robert Schiller, who wrote that book last year, Nobel Laureate Econom- Economist, and the power of narrative to drive economic outcomes. And we believe deeply in that. I've spent most of my career in strategic communications, marketing, advertising, and business strategy. And, and it's easy to imagine those things as things on the periphery of economics. But but actually, as somebody who did, in fact, graduate from the University of Guelph with a, with an honors degree in economics, and, yes, was the very first graduate uh, from the economics co-op program, which, as we were saying beforehand, uh, sincerely is what actually defined my career. So I'll talk about that in a sec. Um, I think the, the convergence, if you will, of narrative and economics is, is the stage that we're at right now. And whether it is early days, a tweet from a president, or a much more concerted and strategic effort to actually tell the stories of an, econ- of an economy, to be able to help dot, drive an outcome, um, understanding those things and putting those things together is, is really where we're at as an economy right now. And something that we're excited to be part of as a company.
1: So what does Um, your company do? I'm kind of interested. Like, what is your product? Uh, No,
2: (laughs) no. A few things. So so we were formed out of, and this is sort of jumping around and answering the question. I, I, As I say, I spent my career mostly in large agencies. And by agency, I mean public relations, advertising, marketing agencies. So that's started in government and moved through there. Um, And so This company comes from um, my colleagues, people who worked with me and in other uh, series of C-level executives from those companies who worked in advertising, marketing, behavioral science, data science, as well as some folks from management consultancy and in-house. So people who worked inside of big corporations. And we essentially formed to be initially, and we started in about mid-December, so about three months before the pandemic hit uh, the U.S., um, and we started initially thinking we're going to try to do strategic communications and marketing communications differently, right? Large, not the same model as the big uh, holding companies and are taking some of the best of that, but in a more boutique, more client-oriented mindset. Um, today, uh, given COVID, uh, it becomes a great balancer in many respects and kind of forced us to rethink the business entirely. Um, and so we are in the business of marketing communication strategy. We joke. We say we don't make ads. We don't make PRs. uh, We don't do anything. We're we're about helping companies in moments of transformation and renewal figure out how to tell their stories in the most compelling way. How to align strategy with messaging with economic growth um, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, we've really dug into economic development. We're in this extraordinary moment where a once in a generation, once in a century reset has occurred to the global economy, and. Policymakers, companies, decision makers, and individuals have to think: Are we just trying to rebuild the economy we had, or do we want to build back better? Uh, to mm-hmm. borrow a turn of phrase from Governor Cuomo here in New York State, and and build more inclusive and more resilient economies. And and that's where narrative economics comes in. So we work with um, innovation accelerators to build micro economies that can be more inclusive. So we're working on one around PPE, domestic and innovative supply PPE. Uh, and you are working with New York state around rebuilding the New York economy in a more resilient way. And then lastly, the last indicator in this last sort of body of work we're working in is a recognition that you can't recreate economic wealth or economic growth without trust. And that with, given COVID and given Mm-hmm. What I think mm-hmm. ought to be understood is a failure of leadership, and that exists certainly in this country. And I don't say that politically; I say just institutionally, mm-hmm. organizationally, um, that there's been a, lot, a significant lack of trust and erosion of trust in enterprises, in government, in institutions, and in the basic functioning of the economy. I mean, even when we do open, when we do open up in New York City for indoor restaurants and movie theaters or gyms. I'm not sure how many people are rushing back to get into a movie theater. Um, you look at air travel. How many people are hopping on airplanes right now, right? Even though airlines and airports are trying to do all kinds of work to be able to solve for that. So our data team and a data behavioral science team has actually built a research methodology to instrumentalize trust, to help businesses and governments and operators understand what are the vectors of trust in a given community, and how do you make which sets of decisions need to be made in order to be able to influence trust? And it's, it's interesting because wow. part of my career, I was at Edelman, uh, which is the world's largest public relations firm, an extraordinary company. Um, and they've had the trust barometer for 30 some years. And I, I had the privilege of being an active part of that for many years. And those kinds of models are hugely important. Once a year, macro global surveys um, and longitudinal over time. So they essentially are evaluating climate, right? What is the climate of trust? We've figured out a way to be able to measure the weather. So we can't tell you great shifts, we can tell you whether or not you need to bring an umbrella to work. And it's that level of fine instrumentation that we're hoping is going to be part of the tools to help rebuild the economies. So those are sort of the core bodies of work. Marketing strategy and business strategy, economic development, and operationalizing trust.
1: How many partners do you have?
2: So right now, we're a six-person core team, partners. Um, and are, in addition to that, because the the name Convergence Collective was very deliberate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, don't ask a bunch of marketing combs, people to try and name a company. It's a terrible idea. It took us months right. to come up with it. Naming is one of the hardest things in the world because all of the yeah. names have already been taken, right? So, yeah. um, it, but it was deliberate. It, it, we, we truly believe, that resilience and inclusion and sustainability in terms of economic growth and social uh, results comes from the convergence of business, technology, and humanity. And if you don't have all three, you can't succeed.
0: But it's an interesting name. Sorry, all it's right. an interesting name because it really fits the times. It seems like lots of things are converging for for bad but i imagine it just gets everyone thinking like it becomes like a, your think tank is probably just accelerated with the heat of what's going on all around and that must have provided some energy positive energy even though with all the negativity to your thought process and your processes it
2: really did, it really did. and that's where actually the collective side comes in because the model of the company is there is a core group of partners but we now work with independent either individuals or independent organizations across the world are to mobilize against given needs. So we've stood up a team in Washington and Maryland that's working uh, with the federal government on a specific project. We work with teams out in Portland uh, and, and in Southeast Asia on different projects. And so the company is deliberately small as a nucleus, but wide in terms of its network. And, and that was the intention. You spend enough time in very big holding companies, you find uh, new and innovative models that we think work better. So. I know this Whoa. seems
1: as an opportunity cost. I, I think our students aren't going to know exactly what was your previous job. Like, what did you give up to do this? What was yeah. your what What was your previous job? And you know, so that they understand, you know, you. You gave up something to do this. What was it? Well, he
0: gave up football because I saw he was on the football tight <laughs> end. So we could talk about that later. <laughs> uh, I had a very short and not at all
2: illustrious uh, football career as, as a Griffin, uh, but proud Griffin nonetheless. Yes. Um, yeah. So no, my my prior job, I was the North American Chief Executive Officer of MSL Group, which is the strategic communications arm of Publicis Group. So there are five international holding companies that control all advertising, marketing, and public relations in the world for all intents and purposes. So for all of our students who think, you know, there's a cabal of oligarchs who really control all ads, it's true. Yes, there are five.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you were part of that. uh, Wow. uh, So we,
2: MSL, was about a 600-person firm, about $120 in revenue, nine offices across the U.S., and I was the CEO.
1: And you were the top person.
2: You know what? One of the funny parts about being a CEO is you really you become uh, very quickly. uh, You learn very quickly. You are the farthest thing from the top person. Um, Mm -hmm. Not only are you a servant to your clients and hopefully your staff, uh, but everyone's got a boss. And I had a global CEO I reported to, uh, whom I'd known for years, and we had a holding company that we reported to. Um, And candidly. Uh, I lost faith in them and they lost faith in me over time. We had different views of what the business should be. Um, in the end we parted ways over a dispute over a client. Um, I believed that we'd, uh, we were working for a client that crossed the ethical bounds of what we could reasonably do as a firm. Um, my oh. holding, we felt that there were 12 million reasons why I was wrong. Uh, and, uh, uh, we disagreed. So uh, we ended up parting ways. Um, oh, yeah. so that
1: means that you can really see how um, in terms of inputs, ethics become kind of important.
2: I, look, Ivy, I I, will tell you, I believe at its core. And I, again, i work in an industry that, you know, especially advertising, marketing communications that, you know, has all kinds of bad reputations, you know, oh, you're spin doctor. So you're just trying to, you know, mm-hmm you know, make, you know, put lipstick on a pig or, you know, try to spin your way out of somebody's problem. I did crisis yeah. poems for years, you know, trying to make bad people look good and all the rest of that stuff. And the honest truth is you can't communicate your way out of the problem that you behaved yourself into. And mm-hmm. uh, if you don't. There's you a know, quote, say that again. <laughs> I sincerely believe it. You, you cannot communicate yourself out of a problem that you behaved yourself into.
0: Um, I like that. That's great. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I guess I'm just a cynical person, but when I see companies in, in this time, just sort of blatantly or just poorly jumping on certain bandwagons, I'm thinking, I don't know. I mean, I want to believe that's the best and there's a ethical base behind that, but sometimes I'm always, oh, I don't know, <laughs> like really. Like, it's easy not, to
2: tell. Look, I yeah. mean, the number of, uh, and, and there were amazing parody videos that were created by all sorts of incredibly creative people, but the number of somber piano music, black and white, um, now more than ever in these times of difficult commercial ran from oh, everywhere man. for the first month and a half of coronavirus. I mean, a, my all of our inboxes in were inundated by the CEOs of every shoot company, clothing company, or airline that we ever traveled on to tell us how much they're doing in the time of COVID. And, you know, at a certain point, guys, I get it. Just, mm-hmm. I, I like your shoes or I like, I, you know, I like your button downs, but I, I don't need to know, um, how seriously you're taking this. Um, so I think authenticity is critical and mm-hmm. that comes back to ethics. It comes back to values at its core. Every business, every company and hopefully every life is about your values and, um, that's kind of why we built the company that we built now i've been incredibly fortunate through my career including in my last role by the way i mean we parted ways at the end over over a client but Publicis is a great firm msl was a great uh company to lead i um, prior to that i was the uh, managing director of the corporate and public affairs practice of edelman which as i say is it's independent it's not part of that five company cabal uh, but it was an $850 million company. I ran a $43, 40, 42000000 million practice, 175 people in New York. And and we did sort of the, the heart of it, right? Corporate communications, public affairs, issues. We got to work um, on marriage equality in 2015 as the Supreme Court made it legal, right? So we wow. we were like deep in the mix of some extraordinary work. We worked uh, with We Mean Business going into... Um, uh, going into co right, as, as we were really in, in the Paris Accord in, in terms of the signing of the Paris Accord. We worked with Nike helping them to find their uh, climate change narrative, climate change narrative, right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's some really extraordinary work we've done for, I've had the pleasure of doing and being a part of, uh, with some unbelievable companies. Um, cool. and so before that, just to, to tell you that arc from Guelph, so my, my trajectory was I had the pleasure of being Part of that economic co-op program. My first work term was an eight-month term in a small international development firm in, in Toronto, where about half of my time I actually got to become the in-house expert in this five-person firm on NAFTA because it was 1993 mm-hmm. and NAFTA had just been signed, but we were in the we were in WTO negotiations and we were trying to figure out how is NAFTA and the WTO going to be able to influence international development and we did a lot of work in the middle east i came back and refocused my major to be uh in international trade uh the great good fortune to study under Graham cadsby i don't know if he's still there
1: he's retiring this year
2: that is an incredible loss for the university and for his students because he's uh remains one of my one of my favorite professors and both after i graduated i had the chance to come back a few times and and, and participate in, in his um Fourth-year uh, seminar class, um, and then my last work term I was at uh, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada uh, in their commercial office, part of their international trade team. And so, for a bit, was part of the trade negotiation team, and then otherwise working in export development. Uh, and while I, after I graduated, I applied to for a master's degree of global political economy at London School of Economics. I was accepted. But at the same time, I was offered to join a company as a partner, as a um, 49% share in this small little company that uh, was run by a, a fellow I met while at Agriculture Canada, the husband of one of my colleagues. And they had been doing some really interesting work in economic development and export development and wanted to reinvigorate the firm. So I turned down the master's degree and joined the firm at 24 or whatever the heck I was in 96. I yes, 24 years old. Um, We ran the company for three years. It was a lot of fun, an amazing lesson in what not to do in terms of running a business. (laughs) You're 24. You think you know everything. And and three years later, discover how absolutely little you knew about really running a company and building a business and fending for yourself and all the rest. Um,
1: So that's actually a little bit of where I want to go here because I mean, obviously I'm, you know, I wrote a, we wrote a book together called cocktail party economics and this chapter is pretty basic on inputs. Um, When you're running a business, like what lessons did you learn? Like what what works? Like what didn't work? What is it about producing uh, a product? What you were producing probably consulting services at the time. And I ended
2: up being export. Our primary output was export development reports for the federal government.
1: Okay, so what what is it you learned is not a good? Like these people might start their own business when they leave school. So what is it that you think? Oh, should not have done that.
2: I think there's there's really two things, and I, they are, I, I guess, the two biggest lessons. Three things, the three biggest lessons I learned that I that it influenced the decision to build the company we're building now, uh, at the time we're doing it, and then how. And it's sort of I'm, the bookends of. I don't like mm-hmm. to in any way think that I'm at the tail end of my career. I'm so You're career launching, <laughs> uh, but sort of the bookends of what I've done over the past twenty some odd years. Um, so I'm. 24 years old, my business partner was in it well into his 50s. He was sort of the nearer the tail end of his career and was a very successful former government official, former business person, and then had this company. And that asymmetry was, on the one hand, amazing because he was the wizened, gray haired, smart, former Navy commander, literally a Navy commander uh, in the Canadian Navy. Um, and uh, but his Eco- the, the economic asymmetry for us was, became a problem. He, this was my entire livelihood. I'm starting my career. I've got to mm-hmm. pay my bills. You know, eventually wanted to get engaged to my girlfriend, my, my uh, at the time, and, and all the rest. So I, um, we had a different set of priorities in terms of scale and growth was one. And so mm-hmm. asymmetry and what your your risk tolerance at that mm-hmm. of your life and career. Second is understanding what business you're actually in, and do you have something that is unique enough uh, that it actually can be a difference maker? Uh, we, we we tripped into the business we were in. and actually picked up from the work I was doing in co-op at my co-op program at Agriculture Canada. I was writing these economic export development market assessment reports, EMARS, um, and they still needed them done and hadn't hired a new co-op student to run them. So look, We'll start a little company. We'll go do this, and we did. It was mm-hmm. fun little work, and we managed to pitch bigger business, and it's fine. But the scale of the business was always tied to the handful of us who were writing those reports. And there was no, there was nothing special about the work that allowed you to go any further. Which is the third point, and that is scalability. If you can't scale, you don't have a company. You have a boutique. You've got a, large job. Yeah. a job. you just have mm-hmm. multiple bosses, right, uh, instead of one. Um, whereas now. We've sort of pivoted to that, and and that's and trying to understand the essence of that. And look, ben cap people will tell you, and eh, it's got to have this black box, and you've got to be about all the time. VC's know way more about what businesses will scale and grow than I will ever learn. Um, but for me, it was that experience then that led to my business partner had an opportunity to join a big firm, a company called Government Policy Consultants (GPC), which quickly became Fleischmann-Hillard, which is the third largest, fourth largest PR firm in the world. They were sold to Omnicom, which is one of those holding building companies. And um, we essentially shut down our company and he and I both joined FH. Mm. And again, I said, my co-op program was a direct tie to my career. I was in that business because of my time at Agriculture Canada, and I was able to join Fleischmann because they were building an international trade policy practice under uh, one of the smartest people I've ever worked for in my career, a gentleman by the name of Jerry Shannon, uh, who was a former deputy minister of trade and had led the Canadian, he was Canada's chief negotiator for the w, the Uruguay round of the WTO. He passed a few years ago. I um, may rest in peace, but um, he was extraordinary. And so I was a trade policy guy and I had a degree in economics from the University of Guelph specializing in trade policy. So I was able to jump into that and, we built that for a couple of years and he retired and you just sort of stay. I stayed for 13 years at Placement. I eventually became the, a senior partner and the, the managing director of public affairs in Canada. I was a lobbyist for a decade. Um, I had friends that I was in Ottawa. I had friends who, you know, had, uh, um, because, of, well, because of Guelph and co-op, I moved to Ottawa and worked for Agriculture Canada after I graduated and then built this company out of Ottawa. All of my friends were politicos, Young liberals in, in the Kretchen or then Martin government. So being a lobbyist was pretty easy. I knew everybody. I knew the people. <laughs> um, now it seemed tawdry in some way, but at the time, we were just buddies going on fishing trips and talking about stuff. Um, and Fleischman eventually moved me to New York. They asked me 11 years ago to come build public affairs practice in the New York office, which I did, and subsequently built public corporate and public affairs, and from there moved to Edelman and MSL. And now where I am, which is having a blast running this company.
1: Uh, so. Do you have any projects you can actually talk about? Like any, like you don't have to get into specifics, but sort of mm-hmm. sectors that um, you think are kind of interesting right now?
2: Yeah, I think. Um, so let's talk about trust for one, because I really do think it's it's a really interesting space. So we are uh, just starting work with a series, a handful of uh, tier one airports in, um, the U.S., working directly with their heads of strategy and innovation and their COOs on this trust instrumentalization. So if you're an airport and you're trying to um, figure out, what do I do to restore confidence and trust in air travel? Well, nobody buys a ticket from airport A back to airport A, right? They, They go from airport to airport. So you need multiple airports in the mix. But what do you do? Do you put hand sanitizer every 20 yards or every 50 yards? Do you clean the gate area um, after every boarding and deplaning or after every three or five? What does the signage look like? Is it warnings about masks or is it positive encouragement? Which are those things? What is the behavioral science? Mm-hmm. And what's the data science behind that? The funny, part of, the, the funny part about the situation, Marina, one of the amazing sort of great things that we don't realize about COVID is COVID made every bit of data that we had pre-COVID mostly useless because it is this great shock it changed the way we think it changed the way we behave and when you have this massive disruption you literally turn the economy off in the in new york in new york state for months like right? we again we still don't have indoor dining we still don't have any of those things that in much of ontario now you guys already have um uh,
1: not a lot of indoor dining
0: okay. i think it's starting though it's starting in Parts of Ontario, phase three yeah. is indoor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: but it's just, I mean, just we started. we went into shutdown, you know. And by the way,
2: clearly was the right, I mean, New York State was the epicenter and now is only the third highest state in terms of number of reported COVID cases. Most recently exceeded as Florida's number one and California number two because they restarted too quickly. They didn't follow the full guidance, all those kinds of things. But that aside, oh. Um Interesting. Operationalizing trust for air travel. So we're actually also working with um, the American Association of Airport Executives who are working with us to actually help um, build this model and, and bring it into other airports. But speaking of economics, Evi, right, inputs okay. and outputs. what's amazing about the model. So we've got a really interesting model. We have a methodology. We have business partners who have put this thing together and have formed, a, a, we think, a unique way to build on the strength of the work of the elements and the Deloitte's and the McKinsey's who do some really great macro work and turn it into a micro program. But we've also found partners who we've created economic models for that incentivize them to be part of this, not just on the basis of restoring trust and air travel, but actually making the economics of the model work for them. So we have revenue and profit-sharing models with the association that's going to help us introduce it into other airports. For the airports who've joined us at the very beginning, sort of took a flyer on us, if you'll pardon the expression, uh, but they also have a revenue share or profit share model as we grow up to past a certain number of airports so that they're almost investors
1: Right. program.
2: Right? Yeah. Um, so we're, we're taking that same model and have just started to have conversations about applying that to other areas where Trust in either the economy or the institutions is an absolutely critical precursor to the economic or social outcome that you need.
0: Well, you right. need to work with the grocery stores. <laughs> Like I've, I've seen this really, I, we, Evan and I talk about this a lot because we have different preferences, in grocery stores, but I've seen this so clearly, you know, one store that I, I went, they just established it right from early before they even had to established a really strong, you know, Protective thing. I remember being in line, and the, the, the woman in front of me uh, didn't have a mask. She was on her phone, and and she was stopped. It said uh, the woman said, "You can't come in here unless you have a mask." So oh, she got really mad, and the woman said, "Well, you can you can buy one for a dollar and donate it. We'll we donate the money." And so she took one, but they were insisting. And they, you know, so the precautions just gave me that sense of, of well-being. And right. I've been to other grocery stores and I'm like, oh, uh, I don't know. I don't. I, every time I go in, I feel like I'm risking my life. Right. Like, so <laughs> so it, it's so interesting what you're saying is it's to, to get the trust back. Like um, I've heard this with restaurants. Right. Uh, if you tick off people at restaurant, you know, the repercussions go You know, multiply exponentially, right? So I remember listening to these people, this manager talked to the staff about, listen, you know, you've got to make it right, right away because that's going to spread like wildfires. What you're saying is just really interesting, right? Like trust starts to, lack of trust starts to spread, even though the people haven't experienced that themselves, they hear about it, right?
2: Well, it comes back to the, the beginning of narrative economics, right? Narrative drives economic behavior. It just does. So, in my former life, when I was more on the communication strategy or marketing strategy side, we would talk about brand and reputation, right? And the, you know, it's hack need, but brand is what we say about ourselves. Reputation is what somebody says about us, right? It's sort of the, the notion. And And in that model, you've got to establish a brand that is true to who you are. We talked about values earlier. It's got to be authentic. And that the story that we tell the outside world has got to be the experience that people have when they interact with us if not you create a cognitive dissonance that damages reputation and spreads like wildfire that erodes trust right so all of these things come back full circle what's extraordinary is now realizing the degree to which these aren't just fluffy things this isn't just pretty advertising and pretty you know stories that we tell each other or you know pretty pictures This is economic growth. This is economic resilience. This is economic performance. And frankly, this is people's livelihoods. I
1: think what's really interesting is that often people think of economics as this hard, mathy thing. And I'm often saying, you know, if somebody asks me, yeah, if somebody asks me what I think economics is all about, I'm going to say it's about behavior of people and businesses. Who are out to survive, which means they have to make a profit, but it's about trust. Like markets are about trust. If if I am going to give someone my credit card number, I want to know that that data is secure and that someone hasn't stolen it and is starting to, you know, ching, ching, ching some bills on it, and that the thing I bought is actually what the quality that I thought I was buying. So the whole online market for a long time, had a trust issue, but then they figured out how to actually guarantee the the experience and the product. And now they, like, I just bought a couple of things online and right away they're sending me a survey. How was your experience? They want to know what worked, what did it. And they're constantly trying to make it that I will buy online again. Uh, because once that you have a bad experience, like I had a situation where I bought a pair of shoes from a company, they arrived, I loved them. They were beautiful, except there were two left shoes. Awesome. I got a left and a left. So then I contacted them and said, I have two left shoes. I'd like the right shoe if I could. And they said, no, send it back. So I had to send it back. And then the shoes were discontinued. And so it kind of makes me never want to buy from that company Mm -hmm. online ever Mm -hmm. again, because A, the product wasn't good and be the, they didn't give me what I wanted. And I had only bought a second pair of shoes so I could get the discount on the sending, you know, the shoes. So now I have one pair of shoes I don't really love paying for the cheaper, you know, delivery, and they won't give me the shoes because they're discontinued. So there's a situation where you become reluctant because Mm -hmm. you had this experience. And, And this is where brands are important, like national brands, you know, they they spend a lot of time uh, building up what they consider things you can trust. Right. Right? That yep. that They're so, trying to say you can trust this brand because, A, they got a big name who's advertising for them or uh, they're, you know, they have a lot at stake. So I think trust history, is yeah. really a big deal. Yeah. The history of
2: brands, the reason brands exist, mm-hmm. they are a way to be able to delineate between something you can trust, something you know, something you can believe in, versus some charlatan selling snake oil on the side of a road mm-hmm. so that's the that's the idea behind that. so i, I was never a believer in you know McLean's no logo and that notion i actually think brands matter i think brands mm-hmm. brands done branding and brands done properly and ethically and held to account are a net value and net benefit to society right so i the, the question now becomes behavior and trust. And, and again, I, I completely agree with that in your experience. We, in New York City, of course, right, if, you know, the, one of the great parts about living in New York is if you can imagine making money off of it, somebody has already created a business doing it. And so for things like delivery of everything is possible, right? You name it, you can get it delivered, whether it's alcohol or food or anything can be delivered to you. And um, most of those companies had thoughtful return policies, but they had some mechanics associated. with it. Mm -hmm. As soon as COVID hit, they just made it, hey, you have a problem. You go online and you indicate, no, this thing didn't come or five eggs were broken or whatever. No problem. Refund right away. Not even a question. You don't have to show them. You don't have to send them a picture because they understood the people's need is so great. Our ability to vet this is going to be a pain in the butt. And all we're gonna do is make people upset with us and make them not trust us and make them think that we don't trust them. That's mm-hmm. the other thing about trust, by the way. When brands extend trust, they get it back twicefold. Right? And and that's the there's a funny, there's a book called The Speed of Trust, right? And they one yeah. of the themes of the speed of trust is extend trust first, right? Because when you do, it will return back in multiple in multiples. And so that's this idea of trust and and how it is. So, those thematics we've known forever. Now we're in this stage where we're at, okay, we have this massive shock of trust being Mm -hmm. eroded. What different, we know we have to do things. Which combination of things will have the greatest impact? A and B might cost $10,000 and would have a 5% impact on trust. A, B, and C would cost 50,000 and would have an 8% impact on trust. A and D will cost 30000 and will have a 10% impact on trust. Which combination of things do you choose? This is like a second year um, uh, of economics. This is success. like
1: a, a an I, it's like a, yeah, almost like an Isoquant. You know, right. what are the different combinations to get to a certain level of trust of, right. so of inputs that you yeah. think you can spend money on?
2: In the spirit of inputs and outputs, right? I, I'm an organization, I have to create a set of inputs that are going to create the following output. Like, right. i just don't know which so we've felt like we feel like we've helped create a model that hopefully will be able to answer some of those questions and and hopefully actually even apply them and i agree with you by the way your economics fundamentally is about behavior and trust at its core the, mm-hmm. the you need to understand microeconomic theory you need to understand microeconomic theory and that's all great and i remember um is the Shakespeare Arms still there, uh, the bar of the Shakespeare Arms outside of off campus? I don't
1: know. I don't actually, I'm not sure. No. It it might be. I remember my senior year, uh,
2: perhaps having had a few too many beverages at the Shakespeare Arms and getting into a debate with my uh, fourth year microeconomics professor who happened to be there as well. I, we knew the owner's really well I was behind the bar, pouring beer for friends. And he looks at me and he's like, well, what the hell are you doing here? And we got into a whole debate over microeconomic theory and the value of lambda. And, you know, once you use some fake number to be able to, you know, quantify behavior or or opinion, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't buy it. So I think the hard math stuff is important, but the real value is the behavioral economics and the understanding of, um, The most basic economic transaction is a transaction of trust. Bartering. I'm going to give you this chicken for this hammer or whatever else Mm is. I believe, A, I give you the chicken. You're going to give me the hammer, not hit me with it. And B, that the hammer is going to work, that it does the thing that I want it to do. Money, right? Currency. Currency is entirely predicated on trust. It used to be backed by this idea, yeah, yeah, don't worry. There's a whole bunch of gold stashed away somewhere. And that's what backs this currency. And if you ever need it, we can just go out and back in the gold. And my dad spent his career in precious metals, actually. That's what he did for a living. He started in precious metal refinery. Then at the height of his career, he owned, he was the CEO of the largest uh, vertically integrated precious metal jewelry, manufacturing jewelry distribution company in Canada, and then bought the second largest one uh, before the early 90s recession. Um, and so my dad, in my dad's way. Well, my, my mentor and my, one of my best friends, and uh, his his gift to my kids uh, for their birthday every year, um, until he retired a few years ago, was a half an ounce of gold. So, uh, because you know what? And to be used for college. Who knew that my kid would be going to uh, college in, in the moment of COVID, where gold hit almost $2,000 yesterday. <laughs> so uh, you're going to
1: sell the gold? <laughs> that's awesome. Way
2: to go, dad. Uh, but anyway, so... You know, I, it just—it's all about trust, and and I do think even economic development, right—that other side of our business—if you want to rebuild and build more resilient economies, right? I mean, they've got to be more inclusive. Look, this country um, mm-hmm. has struggled with inclusion. Uh, all countries have, but but the U.S. obviously has its history and race, and we're currently in a moment of of, of awareness. And, uh, and and, and light, hopefully enlightenment around social justice, that will have an impact. But if it doesn't have an impact uh, at the economic level, if redeveloping inner city and or more rural or suburban economies doesn't become more inclusive to people of color, to minorities, to women and beyond, there's no way they'll be resilient. There's no way we'll resolve through the next set of shocks. We know the data already in the US, um, lower income, and people of color are wildly disproportionately more negatively impacted by COVID-19. Partly because of some pre-existing conditions that are driven that are driven largely because of impoverished conditions and partly because of lack of access to quality health care, mm-hmm. right? And because of other factors that are broader socioeconomic and cultural behavior, right? And so if we're going to be talking about rebuilding economies, then we've got to be talking about how we do so in a more resilient way? We've got to be talking about creating trust and building trust within those kinds of communities and investing and taking time because it, we're we're at risk of facing another gilded age, right? Where you've got this fraction of people doing really well, and 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 we have some in this country who believe the fact that the stock market is doing well means the economy is doing well, and I mean we, we just know that's not true. Um, no.
1: Well, I think this has been an interesting conversation. I don't yeah. It's been rolling for a while. So <laughs> I, I'm just going to pull it back to, uh, uh, to close. And I just, I, I think that when we're looking at, you know, being, making wealth, being mm. productive, um, it requires, it requires good ideas and people with certain skills and people who combine those skills and people who take risk. And people who have resources they bring to the table. And uh, we have to, and you know, you did talk a little bit about trade. We, I really do believe that if we can have trust between countries, this makes a huge difference too in terms of global wealth. And so uh, I just want to really thank you, Ron. It was uh, a great conversation. I feel like um,
0: we could go on for another hour, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think we should. uh, I just want to say thank you. I just appreciate so much that you took time. Uh, when I know you're in a startup situation again, so you're busy, and uh, so hopefully down the road we will maybe have another conversation, find out what happened, yeah. and uh, so I just want to say thanks so much for joining yeah. us today. It's
2: really my pleasure. The one thing I would say, in, in the spirit of inputs and outputs, Eddie, because uh, you'd asked this earlier, if um not that I have advice to give, and uh, but you know you take you, you get what you pay for. so uh, take this with a box of salt. But I will say for for students and for anybody who uh, is is listening to this or watching this, I, you know I, I believe deeply in, yes, hard work and a whole lot of luck. Um, I've been unbelievably lucky uh, to have opportunities and to, to work with and, and uh, for extraordinary people. Um, but I've said for much of my career, um you know i said this as an employee. i said this as a manager and, and now certainly as an entrepreneur there are three things that i believe make the difference um, to the, the three inputs that make the difference to the outputs in your life one is a predisposition to yes right find the path to yes it's super easy to say no but it is a lot more interesting and a lot uh, you'll end up with a lot more success finding a way to say yes to opportunity to work to whether you're a boss saying, hey, can you do this for me? You bet. Second, push. Push yourself, push your colleagues, push each other, push your company to be better, to live up to what you want it to live up to, to strive for excellence. And third, have fun. Life is too damn short to be miserable in your job. And if you don't believe in where you work, go, go find a place you believe in or go create it. Um, because this is, good. I'm having a blast I and I've I've been really fortunate to have loved everywhere I've worked right up until I didn't. And, that, <laughs> you know, and that's the time to leave. Yeah. I'm having a blast in what we're doing now. And if you can't have fun in your life, God, oh, don't do it. Do something else. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: I mean I mean, often people will I, I love what I do. I mean, yeah. I sometimes say I have the I'm the luckiest person. I ended up with this fantastic job. I just love what I do. So I uh, I think that um you know, having fun in life is really important. And it's a little bit of a luxury. Some people have to work and not have fun, uh, because they have obligations that are just too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice to create an economy where that didn't need to happen, that people could actually enjoy their work, and, um, and produce things that people want. So that's great. (laughs) So we are going to close this uh, episode of Cocktail Party Economic Conversations. Uh, we've been in conversation with Ron Gergis, uh, and we're going to um, continue the next episode in Chapter Five. So tune in uh, for uh, more conversations on Cocktail thanks, Party Ron. Economics. Thank you, Hi, Ron. Thanks. Stay safe out there. Yeah. Okay.